Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I love you all so much, <laughs> and it is such an honor to be part of this um, community. Uh, so, get my tissues out, the usual. <laughs> um, before I start, I uh, got a word, um, and just for the lady in the red and black scarf, yep, right there next to Natasha, I just want to say that you are um, on the brink of something, and uh, what you are looking for, you are going to find, and you are in the right place, and you are in the right community, and uh, this community, uh, what we are asking for is what you desire. And I want to. I just want to encourage you that this is the journey, uh, that you're not alone in what you're asking. The, the the deep things in your heart that you are asking the Lord, is um, you, you're not alone in. There are people in this community that are doing the same. So I just want to encourage you, uh, talk with others, share with others, learn from others, uh, and know that we can learn from you. So um, you're in the right place. It's awesome to uh, have you here. Um, today I want to share uh, personally what God is revealing to me. And it's something I'm still in the, the midst of, and so it's tender to speak of. And I'm going to uh, expose myself uh, pretty much. And uh, not not for the, the sake of how... Uh, terrible I am, but actually to emphasize the, the mercy and the faithful and the loving kindness of God and what he has shown me in my life and how he has truly saved me um, and is saving me. And, um, you know, exposure was uh, the word of the year. Uh, last year, uh, because so many things came into the light, uh, things like ISIS and Ebola, uh, that the, the word exposure, things were being exposed, and I, I find it interesting because it's been the very uh, thing that's been happening here, and, and I know it's, uh, it can be a humiliating thing, but it, it's to uh, see the glory of God and the glory of his heart towards his people. And um, I've got to a point where I have seen uh, his faithfulness, his patience, his uh, relentless, long-suffering, kind and merciful, so beautiful and gentle, uh, humble and strong and powerful uh, being that I cried out that you, my Lord, deserve the most faithful, pure, beautiful, submitted, and surrendered bride. You deserve that. And whether I am her or not, you deserve that. And that was a very um, humbling and confrontational process being worked out in me to get to this point uh, in one respect, I have truly known the joy of intimacy I have with Christ. I know it in my innermost being. Um, but in the same light, I have seen how intrinsic and innate it is to abuse the heart of Christ and his position as husband. And it's a state of heart that uses the benefits of the bridal position to glorify herself. 
and it's devastating. It is devastating that I come to realize that I had set my eyes on myself and that I would become bigger than whom I am preparing for and how I missed his heart completely, completely. See, a bride who is preparing for herself will focus on what she looks like on the outside, her garments, her adornments, her reputation, her hope for, uh, her hope for the future with her husband is um, in what she will inherit and how she will benefit. A, bri- a bride preparing for her groom will, pre- will prepare for what she looks like inside. Her heart, her attitude, and her ability to find life in her husband. For a bride to find her life hidden in her husband. Now, I'm sure uh, some of us, some women, can uh, be grasping uh, for air with what I've just said. Um, But listen, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submitting ourselves to our husband, earthly, is a way of preparing our hearts unto the Lord, as Samuel says. So there's so much more than just a submission in marriage to our husbands. It's actually a preparation of the heart unto the Lord because of his design. The life of the church is hidden in Christ. So would a wife find her life? So would a wife find her life in the covering of her husband? Can it be a reality that that I can find my life in Kirk as he is submitted unto the Lord? And not because I trust him. I don't I don't trust people. <laughs> not in a bad way, but what I mean is I trust the Lord. And I trust on his word. And his word holds the potential uh, for that reality. So when he says, submit to your husband, I'm trusting his word. I'm submitting to my husband because of his word and his faithfulness. My faith is in his faithfulness. And so this is not a limited position by all means, but one of unlimited freedom in Christ. Because love and submission produces oneness, and oneness is the hope of the bride, the true bride. Which brings me to this. There is a true position of the bride of Christ who he is looking for amongst his people, which is his church. She will be a faithful remnant who are, in, who are betrothed to him today, and will remain not only faithful, but in pursuit of him. And she will be the one that he deserves. Not because of who she is or who she was, but only because of who he is and what he can do in and through a submitted and surrendered heart. The bad news is there is a true and prevailing presence of a bride who is betrothed to him but is living as a divorced wife even though she is married. And she's amongst the church today and is in a process of moral deterioration 
Because left to herself and her own understanding and the rejection of the knowledge of God, the intimate knowledge of God that is on offer because of the rejection to that, the true knowing of her groom, she has become hardened, resistant, and rebellious. And it says in Lamentations that she did not consider her destiny, therefore her collapse was awesome. Her collapse was awesome because she did not consider the destiny, the potential by faith that she is called to be a a radiant and faithful wife, a bride that is submitted to her husband that together in oneness they would glorify the Father. That is the potential of what his people are called to. But because of um, leaning on her own understanding and trusting herself, she becomes hardened to that and unbelief sets in and she starts to rebel and she starts to resist. And today I want to read you something from the book of Ezekiel because in this book it distinguishes the heart of God and the response of the church. And in this, it has made a demand on my own heart to be examined by his spirit. And oh, the, the gut-wrenching revelation of seeing myself in this description has truly brought a, a baffling grasp of his love and his mercy towards me. Because this prevailing presence of this, um, of this woman I identify with. I so identify with. I, I feel I have been there. And um, what gives me the authority to speak on spiritual adultery? Uh, I can only say experience. <laughs> Sad. But that is the only thing I can... The only, way, the only reason why I feel responsible to even share this. And, you know... I'm going to expose myself, but, but I, am, I am confident in the work he has done in me. And I am, I am free in who he has shown himself to, to be to me that I can actually say this. Because I'm not, I'm not in fear of uh, what might be thought of me after today. <laughs> because I know, I know who, he's, who um, I am in him, but more so who he's calling me to be. And... I have faith in that. So, because <clears throat> um, it's not just in me, it's in the body and his body. And so Ezekiel's message is addressed to a demoralized remnant exiled in Babylon. And the moral responsibility of the individual is a primary theme in his message, where uh, corporate responsibility no longer shields the individual. Where no longer an individual can ride on the revelation of others. Each individual must accept personal responsibility for the national calamity that is going down in this day, right? This is the context of uh, what was happening when Ezekiel was speaking. Each individual is responsible for his or her own sin. And in this context, the sin is defined as spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Adultery is a woman who is married that is playing the harlot. 
He is saying it's the weight of the cumulative sin of each individual that contributed to the breaking of the covenant with God. And each bears a share of blame for the judgment that resulted in the exile to Babylon. Okay, so when I hear this, I hear the church. And in knowing the hope that God has for his people to become a faithful bride, yet hearing this hopeless uh, state of these people committing spiritual adultery, I see potential for two things, right? Two things. Um, We can either learn from the history of our people, the church, and examine our hearts and come to know the heart of God, that he yearns for a deep and intimate, glorious union with us. Or we can miss his heart, operate from unbelief, chasing shallow and satisfactory lovers until we self-destruct. Potential for either can happen with the options of negligence or diligence in the examination of our hearts. One will lead to life and one will lead to death. And that's our decision today. But let's not forget, as we've just heard, that God sees us collectively. The bride is not one person, but a people group, which means the option of each individual to either neglect their spiritual states or diligently examine themselves will affect the body as a whole. Will affect the body as a whole. And this makes loving your brother and sister to a whole nother level. A whole nother level. To realize just how interconnected we are as a body and the divine reality of what a collective people can become in Christ, perhaps the light of, a wo- the, light of the world, a city on the hill. How much more do we need to be encouraging each other to work out our salvation, to walk in the light and to urge the sanctifying work of the Spirit? the examination and the restoration of our hearts to walk in discipleship and love our brothers and our sisters as if our own salvation is at stake. To really love another person that you care so much for their spiritual state and what they can come into as your own. Because is it at stake? In Hebrews it says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. Can we love one another like this? And in this, no way can we allow uh, this interconnectedness to breed a judgmental spirit if we are truly judging ourselves and the logs in our own eyes. We really are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So, the question is, how did they get here? How, how did these people, this remnant, how did they land up in Babylon, exiled to Babylon? We're going to read in Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, This says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. 
No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, you matured, and you became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. You know, when I was a little girl, uh, there was this beauty contest called Little Miss Tinkerbell, right? And I wanted to be Little Miss Tinkerbell. And I'd say to my mum, my beautiful mum that's here, um, I'd say to her, Mum, this year can I enter? And she would look at me and smile, and she would say, Ah, darling, why don't you just let your hair grow a little bit longer? I, uh, if you've seen my daughter, Shiloh, she's got like this mullet-style hair, where like her fringe hasn't quite grown, but the back has. And I, I, she's got my hair. That was my hair. So, so my mum was kind of like, oh, you know, just, we'll, we'll let it grow maybe next year. And uh, so next year came, and, and then I said, Mum, can I enter a little Miss Tinkerbell? And then she says, no. You know, let's just wait. Yeah, she's pointing to her teeth. Let's just wait till he has some teeth, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I hear it. Anyway, I'm about six now and started to get the feeling I was never going to be Miss Tinkerbell 1991. And, and I never was. <laughs> but, you know, in this time, my parents raised me in a household rich in love, uh, memories and family trips, and, of course, discipline at times. Um, they cared for my physical needs, and they nurtured my little heart. And every day I woke up knowing, knowing that I was greatly loved and was never without. Um, one day, I remember when I was about 15, and one night me and my friends were about to head out to a party, and we got dressed and we put makeup on and we took photos. And in those days, uh, it wasn't instant photos, right? You had to go get them developed. And uh, I, anyway, I remember looking at this photo of myself and my friends. And in that moment, I had realized how much I'd grown up. Like you look at yourself objectively for the first time in a photo, and it's kind of like, oh, my hair's grown. Oh, I have a full set of teeth. You know, like... I'm, I'm forming, you know, I'm uh, growing up. And um, I was becoming a woman. And of course, experiencing emotions, feelings, um, you know, especially towards boys. Uh, but it was at an age where I became quite self-aware. Self-aware and how I looked, um, aware of what I wanted, how to get it and mostly awakened with a desire and a readiness to be deeply intimate, deeply intimate. And in verse 8, it says, When I passed by you again, and he's talking to Jerusalem after saying, you know, I, I swaddled you and I, I looked after you as a baby. He says, When I passed you by again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. It was your time of love. And so I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. And yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, said the Lord. And this verse just 
ruins me, but in the best kind of way. Because when I first read it, it felt like your loved one uh, drawing him, uh, drawing you close to himself and coming into the knowledge that his desire is towards you. His desire is towards you, and he brings uh, you to himself. Um, and it's this extraordinary reality that he sees us form and mature before him. And when he sees the time is right and our time for love has come, he invites us to be married to him, to betroth him. And it says in the Song of Solomon, do not awaken love until she desires. Do not awaken love until she desires. This love that restrains itself and waits is true love. He doesn't bring himself upon her when she's not ready. He waits until she awakens, until she desires. And I hope this brings clarity to what is happening for us in this community. It is a strong sense that we are in a time of love that from our infancy, our, needing, uh, our needy state, that our beloved has nurtured us and raised us from infancy into adulthood, has washed us close, closely, bathed us in his word, clothed us in his power, now knowing we are capable to respond to his love. Capable to respond to his love, to give back as we have experienced it. He is asking us on a deeper level to be one. That desire that he has for us, do we desire him in the same way? A mutual affection. As a baby, we have needs, and our life depends on our needs being met. You know, when uh, Shiloh was a baby and she, I used to nurse her, um, I mean, I remember saying to Kirk, I just wish you would look at my face sometimes. Like, instead of just constantly at the food source, like just see mummy's face, you know. Um, but the, the, the truth is babies, they, they live by, um, uh, by their needs being met. They, uh, that is love in that time. And um, they, they don't express love. Really? They, yeah, it's, they're sort of like little, little blobs. And I sort of couldn't wait for her to just, I couldn't wait for her just to respond to me. Every parent desires that, right? You, you nurse this baby and you just can't wait for them to grow up that you can have this mutual uh, respect and this mutual love. Um, as we grow up, we learn the way to live by our parents, leading by example, by house rules, by the safety of boundaries and curfews. Our parents' hope is that we will grow within the bond of love so that we can one day live freely and make good decisions, but also be entrusted, be entrusted with the family's values or the inheritance, but to be good stewards. He enters into a marriage covenant. He betrothes us to himself, a oneness, the one who saves us, and then proposes to us. So in this time of love, he begins to manifest his love to us personally and individually. In verse 9, it says, I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in broidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. 
I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful, and you succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed upon you, says the Lord. We have formed, uh, and that does, but that does not necessarily mean we've matured. We can grow up and on the outside be formed, but the attitude of heart can still be immature. And let me give you an example. At 15, so this was the same time I saw that photo, um, later that year my friends threw me a surprise party for my 15th. And it was held in our local church hall. And now I grew up in a small village, like small village. And so this was sort of the only venue uh, around uh, that everyone knew everyone, okay? And so this party became quickly out of hand. Uh, There was everything under the sun there. Um, Alcohol, vandalism was going. There was drugs. Local gangs showed up. um, And soon after, the cops arrived. Everything got shut down. Okay, this was my 15th birthday party. And much to my shame, this event was reported to the local newspaper. It was the village news. That's what the newspaper was called, the village news. <laughs> and it was the village news. It was headline. It was actual headline, wasn't it, Mum? And, uh, you know, the worst of it was that, you know, I deserved to be spoken about um, you know, spoken about in this way. Um, but it was my parents who bared the gossip. It was my... You know, part of the story talked about um, how it was a reflection of the parents of these unruly kids. But the truth was that I had become my own person. I had become the self-aware and an independent decision maker. And I wanted to live as I pleased. I would squander what was given to me and justify it with a sense of entitlement. What my parents had given to me over the years as I was now taking advantage of. I just wanted to grow up and have the authority but despise responsibility. I was growing up in form but so far from maturing. I was a woman and had desires, and I was ready to love, but landed up loving things that would vie for my attention and promise me satisfaction, like the moment I saw myself in that photo objectively, is that abrupt moment when your soul has opened itself up to the knowledge and the power of being desirable. 
And this is the state of the adulterous bride. It's when she becomes so aware of how desirable she is, not because she is desirable, only because the lover of her, her being has bestowed his beauty upon her, has given her everything, everything she needs. But what has she done with that desire? I would invest that the things that would empower my appearance and the appearance of my life. Because I knew in this world, this gave me control, influence, and the power to bend and manipulate as I pleased, to live as I pleased. And I know this is a scary and hideous description, but it was the truth, and it was the absolute state of my heart. But today, how much more do I appreciate the love, the mercy, the long-suffering and the discipline, the patience and the forbearing that my parents demonstrated through those times, especially when my, my behavior misrepresented them so ruthlessly, so ruthlessly. So I love you and thank you. <clears throat> we can grow in our body's form but it doesn't necessarily mean we have matured or even that we are ready uh, for love or even have the authority uh, or the capability to respond to love, real love. In verse 15 it says, But you trusted in your own beauty. You played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. And you took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my food which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil and honey which I fed you, set it before them as a sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord. As extraordinary as it is to know how he revives us with his love, then lavishes us with the hope of glory and empowers us with garments and adornments, and gifts to remind us who we belong to and the kingdom we are from, I equally find it devastating to know that our response is to take advantage of this position that we have been given, but far greater than that, the person, to take advantage of the person's love. It's a spiritually immature state, and it, it comes out as selfishness, manipulation, control. These are all the symptoms of a immature state. And when I first read this, it pierced my heart. Because of how good and faithful he was towards her, how he resurrected her from death and raised her up in his ways, and how he bestowed his beauty upon her, yet she squandered it. And what he gave her for her own, what he gave her, she used for her own selfish gain. How she used her, her beauty for her own benefit. But I think what got to me is how much I see myself in her. I think about the days when I first came to him and I was a wreck on a road to destruction. 
I had leaned on my own understanding and sought my own ways. I had forgotten the ways of my parents and my values. What they had given me over the years, I had squandered and, like I said, claimed entitlement as their only daughter. From heartbreaking disappointments, broken promises, I had become disillusioned and my heart had hardened. I was desperate for freedom from myself. I did not like what I had become. And from the outside, I had it all, but on the inside, I was dying. And this is how he found me. That state he found me was a baby that was helpless, hopeless, and half-dead, lying in my own bloody mess. It was then I realized that I don't know what's good for me. It's then that I realized I was actually longing to know that there was a greater, and, a greater reality than what I was living. I didn't even know how to live or even to be. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was called for. What was this life about? And I cried out, and he looked at me, and he said, live. He said, live. And I lived. And I grew. And I remember those days so clearly, so clearly. And I'm wondering if we can remember those days when we cried out to the Lord in our utter mess and when we were at the end of ourselves. Can we consider the state of our hearts and lives, what we were when the Lord first looked upon us, when he first looked at us, who were we? And may we never forget how we were found in the light of his mercy and his love before him and before we think of making you know, judgment on, on others in their state, even today. Let's think about how we were found. This is not a call to get stuck in our past, but to remember his mercy, his faithfulness, and his love, and how he found us. Remember, he says, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Remind her. Remind her who she was before I came and I saved her, before I came and raised her, before I came and bestowed upon her myself. Who was she? We have received so much from him. We've received him. There is, we are, there is nothing more we need as his church. We are so rich in supply of him. So I know this position well, the state of the heart well. I described earlier about that snapshot of myself, how I formed in the essence of my fem- uh, femininity, was battle with that word, uh, where I've been looks, looked after, dressed, eaten, uh, of the best. Um, my response to that was to choose myself again, again, after I'd received from him. I chose myself. My eyes were on me. A hardened heart that causes distrust, unbelief, will manifest itself in these ways. The opposite of submission is to resist, rebel, and revolt. 
and we can find ourselves doing this towards them. And I'm not talking about sin that manifests only, but I'm talking about the deep-rooted iniquity that takes credit undue. Using the fame and influence that reaches the nations, not even because of its own wisdom, but the wisdom that she's learned from her husband. The glory of her beauty that she that was bestowed upon her, she used for her power. The capabilities that are not her own, but the anointing of the oil that was tenderly lavished upon her by her Redeemer. The very gifts and adornments that were given to her in remembrance of her husband are exhausted on other lovers. God wants love and we want pleasure. Have we ever detected a lagging in spiritual things, leaning on the concept of covenant, leaning on the concept of relationship, but instead of living it, allowing the things that are true to deeply stir us? I ask today, does he move you? Does he move you? When he speaks, does something shift? When he draws close, closer, do you become so aware of the weight of his presence that it's sometimes hard to even physically look up because you know he's there? He is right there. God gives to his people riches and they offer them before the shrine of their envy. He gives them talent and they prostitute it to the service of their ambition. He gives them judgment and they use it to their own advancement to build their empire with their name as the banner and with no interest of his kingdom and his righteousness. He gives them influence, yet that influence is used for their own ego and empire and not for his honor. Verse 31, you erected your shrine at the head of every road, built your high place in every street. You were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payments to all harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot. No one even... No one has even solicited you. No one has begged you to even become a harlot. No one has even asked you. Um, And yet you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are opposite. And I find this pierces that no one has even solicited us to be a harlot. Your lovers uh, have not even desired you in a way of seeking your pleasure or craving your presence or even requesting your services. It's not only that we are rejecting him, but we are fleeing from him into the unwelcoming arms of lovers who don't even promise any fulfillment. We have everything we need and more in him, and so there's not even a good enough excuse to find ourselves in this position. But can we hear of a bride who's betrothed to him but is living as a divorced wife before she's even married? Can we hear a moral deterioration because she has left herself in her own desires and devices? The rejection of the knowledge of God, the true knowing of her groom, she has become hardened, resistant, and rebellious. Like I said, I'm not talking about sin uh, as we know it. It's a spiritual adultery where we have forgotten him, doubted him, and grown cold towards him, where our hearts have hardened, and we have loved self at times better than we have loved our Redeemer. More self-aware than God-aware, and have sacrificed to our own idols and made gods of our flesh in self-conceit, instead of giving him all the glory and the honor forever. 
In Galatians, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. It's a divorced attitude where our minds, hearts, and spirits are elsewhere, and we are searching for other sources of gratification and fulfillment that should be found in the husband, and the husband should find in the wife. But we turn our backs on the very thing that God himself provided for, for his glory, which would also be for our fulfillment. But we turn our backs on him, and we go in the pursuit of others. The external behavior of mankind is the visible expression of an unseen condition of heart towards God. Remember, she didn't start as a hardened harlot. It was by a process of moral deterioration that was relative to the rejection of the knowledge of God, the intimacy that God so longs to have with us. It was a rejection and a resistance to that of unbelief. Like Greg said earlier, when, uh, when he speaks, do we believe him? Do we believe him? Because if unbelief is found in our hearts, it will harden us and we will rebel and we will resist and we will run into the arms of unwelcoming lovers. There is a, um, sorry, in other words, it's, you know, in our daily living, communing deeply with other things or people than the one who actually saved us. Remember, it was the cumulative sin that brought Jerusalem to calamity. There is a bride being prepared <coughs> prepared for the bridegroom that will bear the glory of God. She is not prepared in heaven, but on earth today. Right here, where we are, in the ordinary places that we occupy, in the daily grind that makes up our life, Remember, he says in Hosea, I don't desire sacrifice, I desire you to know me. It's being together in a daily relationship that is so much more than just surface. It is an integration of life. It is um, knowing that we are imperfect and we are struggling in our faith, yet we do not give up and we do not run away. And we do not turn our back. And this is relentless love that it never leaves us. Is this judgment necessary? What is the purpose of it? I would say it's love. It is the showing of the love of God while the person is still in the condition of spiritual adultery. So if that person is going to be changed, it's not by the judgment of God, but rather by the love of God shown to her while she is in this condition. While we are in it, he speaks to it because of love, because of what he has for her. It is a perplexing and mysterious kind of faithfulness that violates and rubs against the whole grain of our natural human disposition. Who can show love to a wife who is in the midst of her unfaithfulness? Who can do that? Who can do that? Not me, but him. In Hosea, he says, I'm taking you in righteousness, justice, mercy, Love, faithfulness, and you will know me because that is what I am. That is going to be the foundation of our marriage, and that is why you will call me husband. You will know me in those things because that is what I am. I am mercy, I am love, and I am faithfulness. And you will know me as the God who is faithful. You will know me, and you will be my wife forever on that basis. It's the mercy, the love, and the faithfulness and righteousness of God who can look at his betrothed, who has so little regard for the potential of what she can be in him, in marriage, 
and still seem so unyielding, callous and insensitive, and can even mock it, but one day can be a radiant and faithful wife. Only his love can do that. It's not just love, it's relentless love. It's a transforming love. It's a love that will be able to proclaim, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. He is looking to restore his sanctuary in the midst of a regathered people whose head is Christ. And it starts with every individual in the body. Because remember, we are looked at collectively. So it starts with every sanctuary in this house to be cleansed by the judgment, but also by the love and the mercy that calls us out of that and into the the potential of becoming a radiant and faithful bride who will rule with him. So what do we do if we find ourselves in this state? We come back to our first love. And not only do we turn away from our lovers and turn to him, but we pursue him. Just as she turned her back on him and pursued lovers, it is a call to turn back to him, repent, and then pursue him. We need to run into the light, into him every day, and commit ourselves again and again. And to know his love again and again. Righteousness is the condition of being acceptable to God, only made possible by God. It's when we see him for who he truly is that we are transformed in the heart and made ready for him. Only because of who he is, we have the potential to be this radiant and faithful bride that he's looking for. Our faith is in his faithfulness, it's completely dependent on who he is not on anything we can do. We cannot perfect ourselves. Uh, There is just no way. But what we can do is get our eyes um, off uh, preparing the outside of who we are and examine the insides of ourselves, the heart, um, locking our eyes with our groom. And let me, can I just say something? When we do examine our hearts, when I'm at my ugliest, I go to Kirk and I sit under his covering and I just, ah. Because the best place to examine your heart is in the presence of love that is patient and long-suffering who will hear you and listen to you and then wash you, wash you with the truth. This is how we respond. We come under his covering and we acknowledge exactly what is going on. And we allow his word to wash over us and cleanse us and renew us again. Whether I am his bride or not, he deserves the most beautiful, pure, faithful, and wonderful bride. And somehow he has picked us to be her if we are willing. And this is relentless love. Thank you. I'm going to end there. Um, I don't know if we want the band. I'll leave it to Greg. Thank you.